Hey everybody, welcome back to the Warehouse Podcast. My name is Eli. I'll be spending some time with you. Want to first wish everybody Happy New Year, Happy Holidays, everything that you went and did. Uh, hope you enjoyed it. We are uh, getting back on the horse here. I wanted to take some time and kind of step through uh, the thing that everyone's talking about. Actually, you know, just what are the Orioles going to do? Um, and so we have all been talking, of course, here at the Warehouse Pod. We've been going through these possibilities. And, you know, I, I, I think that the reasonable thing to assume is that it's going to come from the trade market. Um, I don't think that we're going to shell out for, you know, even Shota Imanaga is supposed to make over $100 million at this point. So chances are we are not going to be in the running for any significant free agent. I guess there's the chance of kind of a lower tier, like a Stroman or something of that sort. Um, but still think the likeliest avenue, so to speak, is the trade market. So wanted to go ahead here and kind of dive into a potential trade partner. Um, you know, I was originally thinking of making this like a little series um, and going ahead and I was going to start with this team, which is the Marlins, and then I was going to step into the Mariners. The Mariners just went ahead and seemingly, you know, like signed their fate for the next year by going ahead and taking Robbie Ray, flipping him over to the Giants. Uh, they brought back Mitch Haniger, Anthony Desclafani, and I guess you know that says they're probably done trading pitching. Uh, Desclafani is probably going to act as a bit of a swingman for them. Their GM Jerry Depoto actually went ahead and said that he didn't think that there was. Um, or he said, we looked at situations where we traded one of these young arms we have, which of course is who the Orioles would be interested in. And he said, and we didn't like what that looked like. So assuming that the Mariners are off the table, uh, I figure I'm going to spend a little bit more time on the Marlins here. Um, I do think we line up for a couple reasons. Uh, today I'm going to go through kind of that initial thinking, why we do tend to line up with the Marlins, why the Marlins look like, um, you know, viable partners for us um, in this, you know, like uh, instant dating, like, you know, roundabout way of uh, looking at which teams line up and who could be compatible, so to speak. Um, so I guess I'll step into it. I'm going to go through three pitchers from the Marlins today. Uh, I'm going to save two more pitchers who probably just deserve a little bit more attention, a little bit more time um, for the next episode I spend with you guys. And uh, yeah, without further ado, let's get into it. Um, so yeah, I guess just talking in general sense, why we line up with the Marlins. Um, the Marlins last year were 26th in baseball in runs scored. They were last in the National League. Miraculously, they still made it to the playoffs. It's pretty amazing. Um, their you know, projected record just, on, just based on you know, their run differential they should have lost about nine more games than they did. So, um, you know, they are obviously going to be in the market for some sort of offense. They also did all of that last year without Jorge Soler, who hit 36 home runs and is on the free agent market and is going to be out of their price range. Um, so we, like, take a look at really positional needs. You know, obviously they need to fill out this offense, their positional needs. In the outfield, they've got Jazz Chisholm, and he's great. But in the corners, we've got Brian De La Cruz, Jesus Sanchez, and Avisayo Garcia. De La Cruz, and these are all Zips 
I'm sorry, Zip's projections that I'm using today. But De La Cruz projected for one war, Jesus Sanchez for 1.1. Obviously, Garcia is actually minus 0.2 war. <laughs> so in the corner outfields, they're really, really weak. And you look at us, we've got Kerstad, we've got Kowser, we've got Hayes, we've got Santander, we've got all sorts of corner outfield options. Um, and that's not to mention, you know, potentially a, a Kobe Mayo who could be making that switch out to right field. And, um, you know, any number of depth, you could dive down to Dylan Beavers, you could look toward a Judd Fabian if you want to do a lower level trade. Um, Fabian can probably handle center, but I digress. Uh, in the infield, they've got Jake Berger they traded for. Um, he's probably going to handle third base. They traded for him at last year's deadline. He, he does hit well, but quite frankly, he's like negative defensive value. So the idea of him being your third baseman, I think, is not ideal. Um, you could slide him to DH. Uh, that said, if you put him at DH, obviously, obviously, Ayil Garcia probably needs to spend more time in the field where he is also negative value. So let's say that Jake Berger is entrenched there. Um, they've got Luis Arias at second base, obviously the only guy, you know, feeding the old style contact, bat to ball, OBP, uh, true leadoff hitter kind of deal. Um, he's at second base and they've got Josh Bell playing first. Um, I think that, you know, Berger will probably get some time at first. Arias will get some time at first. They'll switch around in and out of the DH role. Um, but this shortstop position, it looks terrible. Um, Dan Zimborski for Fangraphs does these hilarious, um, these hilarious, like, almost portmanteaus of these mashup names. And so they've got John Birdie, Jacob Amaya, and Vidal Brujan. And he went Birdamaya Han, I think is what he said. I actually, I, I closed it, but it took me, like, you know, three, four solid minutes of just thinking about it to figure out who Jacob Amaya was. I got the other two, but... Um, yeah, so across these two or across these three guys, they're only projecting to get about 1.7 WAR by Zips uh, across the three of them at shortstop. And you know, John Birdie, if you look at him, he's really like um, just slightly below average as a hitter. He's got no power. He's extremely quick. Um, in fact, you know, I <laughs> I was talking to a friend the other day. And uh, I said, you know, like I brought up the possibility of flipping Jorge Mateo to them. And then I said, it's almost a situation where, you know, all the jokes with your mom saying we have food at home. This is almost like a we have Jorge Mateo at home. John Birdie is probably slightly worse, uh, probably, you know, has a little bit less offensive upside. Um, Mateo at least has the shtick that he hits lefties pretty well. Birdie is just kind of. He's fine. Yeah, I'm not trying to knock him too much. You know, he's definitely a major league player. He's an everyday guy um, in a utility role, uh, much like Mateo is. But uh, that that is just to illustrate sort of who he is. He's a little bit on the uh, light hitting, but good defense, great base running, um, John Birdie. But, you know, as a... He's probably the primary piece. You know, Vidal Brujan, they just brought him over from the Rays. Amaya... Er, Bruhan, I don't think, has even been in the bigs for a full year at this point. Maybe last year was his full year. Um, but the Rays didn't really trust him. That's why they flipped him um, in favor of keeping somebody like a Taylor Walls. Uh, Jacob Amaya has never done anything special. So, what you know, it, 
the, the group is just wholly uninspiring. Um, and so I look at corner outfield and shortstop as probably the two things that we could really slide into um, in order to provide them some value. Um, so beyond all that, the Orioles do have some trade history. Uh, and, you know, under the Elias regime, uh, they're probably, not probably, I think they're the most frequent trade partner that Elias has had, as a matter of fact. And I should say that that, you know, should be taken with a slight grain of salt because Kim Ng, who just led the Marlins to their first, you know, their first playoffs in 20 some years, uh, is no longer with the team. They tried to give her a, you know, basically a demotion, which was uh, just kind of ridiculous. So they were trying to instill somebody in front of her and said, we're picking up your side of the mutual option. But by the way, you're going to be reporting to this person. She said no, uh, which good for her. You know, she's too good for that. She should be running an entire team. Um, So this is a different front office coming in is the point I'm trying to make. (laughs) Uh, So new uh, front office here. We've got the Jonathan VR trade in 2019 after we tried to waive him to get out of a $10 million contract, which was infuriating at the time. Then we got Richard Blyer, and then last year, and by last year I mean 2022. I am recording this in 24, so I need to make the mental adjustment there. Um, but yeah, Tanner Scott and Cole Sulcer, I almost said Bo. Tanner Scott and Cole Sulcer got moved in 2022. Um, so we do have some recent trade history with them. Um, and we have these positional fits. You know, the Orioles obviously have shortstops and corner outfielders at the wazoo. Um, so you, you, you can see why um, just pure specula- speculative, speculatively, <laughs> I'm struggling with that word. It's not coming out right. But in a speculating sense, uh, the Orioles and Marlins have been linked up in rumors. So taking a step back and actually saying like, okay, what do the Marlins have that would be appealing to us? Uh, I'd take a look and say, obviously this Orioles team needs pitching. That's what we're all talking about. I did the Dylan Cease episode. We, you know, Tyler talked about it with Craig Kimbrell. If we bring in somebody who can start, you know, that pushes Tyler Wells, that pushes DL Hall, maybe Cole Irvin back to the pen. Um, and then your pen is much better set up for this year. Your rotation is better set up for this year. Everybody's happy. So the Marlins rotation is their strength. It is the reason why not only we make sense as a trade partner for them because of the shortstop corner outfield, but they make sense as a trade partner for us. Um, So Sandy Alcantara just got Tommy John surgery, and he's out. Uh, He was a much bigger contract anyway, so I don't think that the Orioles would have been interested in him. Um, But, you know, he's kind of cool because he's one of the, like, more old-style aces, the kind of guy who can throw 220 innings in a year and put up really good production the whole way through. Obviously, he won the Cy Young Award in 2022, uh, unless my memory is deceiving me. But So Sandy Alcantara is out for 2024. Uh, we will ignore him. Uh, moving on, we've got Jesus Luzardo, who is you know came over from the Athletics in the Starling Marte trade a couple years ago. He's phenomenal. I'm going to save him for next episode because he deserves more time. We've got Yuri Perez, who, you know, they call him the giraffe because I think he's like six foot eight, you know, glass now, Tyler Wells level of height. Um, He came up last year and flashed 
some like true brilliancy in his uh, short debut. They kept him on an innings limit, you know, sent him back down to AAA for a little bit. Um, he's also going to go next episode. I'm sorry. I do have good things for you today. Um, so the three guys we're going to talk about today are the next three, and that's Edward Cabrera, Braxton Garrett, and Trevor Rogers. Um, and, you know, in talking about these guys, we're not just going to deplete the Marlins uh, rotation here. They do also have Max Meyer, a top prospect, coming back from Tommy John surgery. They have A.J. Puck, also formerly of the Athletics, uh, who has been talking about wanting to be a starter. Um, he was one of the top starters in college uh, with the University of Florida. Um, you have Ryan Weathers, who came over from San Diego. Uh, I see him less as a starter than any of the other names here, but um, he's been mentioned as a depth piece, sort of, as someone who can stretch himself out. Uh, I personally don't see that as much, but you know, I give credit to people who spend more time thinking about the Marlins, and they say he's some depth. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so once again... Um, Cabrera, Garrett, Rogers are the three we're going to talk about today. Uh, I think that Max Meyer, coming back from Tommy John surgery, I think that he's uh, basically got to be on the field for a little bit and kind of prove out what he's capable of right now before a team will actually take a leap of faith on him like this trade would be. And I think Puck and Weathers, I only mentioned them for depth as, as to backfilling the rotation as opposed to anybody that we would really try to target. So, yeah, I... Those three, Cabrera, Garrett, Rogers. I think I've said that enough. Stepping into it here, I'll start with Trevor Rogers. I'm going to kind of move toward the most exciting one to me. Um, so I'll start with Trevor Rogers. It's kind of interesting because, you know, if you, if you had talked in 2021 and mentioned Trevor Rogers as a trade candidate, I think he would have more value than um, pretty close to anybody in baseball. Uh, you know, he was... In his rookie year, he came in second in rookie of the year voting to Jonathan India. This was 2021. He had a 2.64 ERA through 133 innings, 28.5% K rate, which is, you know, 5% above average to an 8.4% walk rate, which is pretty close to average, a little bit high. Um, so he has this incredible season. You know, the whole world looks at this like fastball changeup combo. He gets really good extension, um, and obviously he's controllable for the next five years. Uh, so the Marlins are feeling really good about this, and he just kind of plummets in 2022. Um, was apparently like a left side lat injury, um, and you know you're always like anytime you get the stuff on your deceleration. Um, I don't know. It, you know it's problematic. You, it takes you a while to sort of trust going full throttle again. Um, and they're just kind of finicky injuries. Um, you know, it's very, very easy to re-aggravate a lat. So in 2022, he only made 23 starts. Uh, his ERA shot up to 547. Uh, his whip shot up over 1.5. Then in 2023, problems just kept going. He missed a lot of the year battling through that same lat, uh, actually his other lat as well, and then bicep injuries. So he only ended up starting four games. And so you've got this body of work that this it's this one incredible year. And then it just immediately plummets to bad performance and then has not been on the field. 
And at this point, you know, he came back for, let's see, it was four starts at the end of last year. And he looked fine. You know, there, there, there was nothing to really have a gripe with. But it's the question of what you're going to get. Is he really over all of that? Hopefully you would think that the offseason is allowing him to obviously get healthy, to build himself back up to full strength. I've got something in my eye for those of you who are on video. <laughs> um, so, yeah, you hope that the offseason is going to do him some good. But um, I guess, like, diving just one level deeper, um, again, he gets this really great extension. He's a long guy and consistently is above average. Um, throws a four-seam fastball and a sinker. His best secondary is a changeup. Um, I think one of the best things you can say about him is in 2022 when he struggled, hard hit rates, uh, average exit velo against him still stayed above average. Uh, he does not allow hard contact in the very short sample last year and in 2021. Uh, hard hit rates and average exit velo were both, I mean, phenomenal for him. He was 70th, 80th percentiles. Um, and then, you know, like, again, on top of that, the changeup still rates well by measure of stuff plus. His fastballs are about average. Um, the sinker slightly above average. With good health, this is somebody that there is reason to think, you know, he could really be something. Um, and if you think that the Orioles do a great job uh, developing changeups, we've seen that with D.L. Hall. We've seen that with any number of guys, John Means. Um, left-handed change-ups are something that we are good with, and we know how to work with that type of pitcher. Uh, I, I think there's reason to believe that if the Orioles, obviously this is a bit of a longer shot, but if the Orioles go for the value play uh, and do not want to give up a Kobe Mayo or something of that sort, um, and, and you trust that you have this guy healthy, you know, like obviously you run medicals, um, you take physical exams after a trade, it's an option. Um, and, and I think that this is somebody that the Marlins would be more willing to part with because of all those problems um, and because of the wealth of talent that they have coming in behind him. Uh, the other thing I should note on Trevor Rogers, he's a free agent after 2026. So you get three years of him. Um, and obviously, you know, we've talked about lefties in the Camden Yards ballpark. You know, the guys who have the platoon advantage have a you know, gargantuan wall a thousand miles away in left field that they have to hit it over. So we always like seeing lefties. Um, and yeah, Trevor Rogers is that. He is a lefty. He's got, you know, got some promise and has shown really, really good performance at the MLB level. So next guy here, Braxton Garrett. Had to scroll down a little bit. So uh, Braxton Garrett, you got a lot more control over him, I guess, the first thing. Uh, he just went over a full year of service time for the first time. So he'll be a free agent in 2029. You have him through 2028. Um, this was his first full year. And, on, you know, on the surface, the results were great. Um, really, like, you know, got to give him credit. He had a great season. He threw just under 160 innings. Excuse me. ERA was in the 3.6s, 1.15 whip. Um, this is another lefty. Uh, the thing I should say about him, though, is he's, like, very, very much just command above stuff. He throws six pitches and only one grades out as even per stuff plus. Um, 
and that's his slider. And the kind of thing about it is it is like a perfect 100 on stuff plus. So it's a perfectly average pitch. So he throws six pitches and one of them is average, um, you know, purely in terms of stuff. So this is clearly uh, a guy who commands the ball well. Um, you know, I, I, I kind of like looked at that. So uh, Fangrass has stuff plus, location plus, and they kind of combine that into a pitching plus metric. Um, and the location plus is only about average. So, you know, like what that tells me is that if you're getting really pretty solid results here um, and, you know, the actual like location for your pitches is not optimal, the stuff itself is not that great. What that is saying to me is you're just kind of deceptive. You know, you tunnel your pitches well. Everything seems to, you know, pop out of the same spot. They maintain the same plane. You're tunneling, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so there's a lot of deception here. Um, and, you know, the wide pitch mix clearly benefits him in that sense. Um, he actually he throws three fastballs, primarily a sinker, but he's also got a four seam and a cutter. Um, and he complements that with that slider, which is slightly, you know, or which is average. I shouldn't even say slightly above average. Um, slider, changeup, and curveball. Um, so I guess, like, the knocks on him, like I said, he's not a stuff guy. Um, his fastball averages 90.5 miles an hour, so he's very much not, you know, this spin rate, you know, like shoving four-seam fastballs down your throat at the letters. He's not that guy. Um, and quite frankly, he's really bad at limiting hard contact. What I talked about with Trevor Rogers up top, that is not Braxton Garrett. His average exit velo was in the 18th percentile. His hard hit rate was in the 8th percentile. So people hit the ball very hard against this guy. Um, and so you're like, you're probably sitting here and you're like, okay, so you told me he's got this 366 ERA, low whip, but like you haven't said a single good thing since. And so I'm here to like bring it back around. Don't worry. We're going to start talking good things. So he strikes out people at like a league average clip. Um, despite the like seemingly non-existent ability to you, you know like really make the ball dance in any kind of useful way um he has like surprisingly good chase rates and this is uh, kind of what i alluded to with deception earlier um it you know he gets chases on like 30 percent uh of pitches outside the zone which is in the 76th percentile across the league you know so like top quarter of the league in inducing a hitter to, you know, swing at something they're not supposed to. And that's like a really, really valuable ability. And I think something that, you know, probably these like stuff plus, I just hit my monitor. The people on video, this is my first time doing video. So you got to bear with me. <laughs> uh, the people listening in podcast form are probably just tired of me saying all this stuff about the video people. But um, so yeah, 76 percentile in chase rates. Um, you know, when you do not have the ability to blow somebody away and, you know, you're not throwing 102 miles, 102 miles an hour in the middle of the zone that can just beat somebody with pure stuff, you need to have that ability. You need to have the ability to live on the edge and then make that stuff enticing enough um, and deceptive enough to still induce a swing, you know, when on a pitch that that hitter doesn't like. Um, and so the chase rates and the, um, you know, and what I was talking about with the deception, like, 
this all kind of comes together in one thing that I think is really, really, uh, like, really telling about him. He induces ground balls at a 49% clip. So, you know, one of every two balls hit for him is on the ground. And this is like, I mean, as far as starting pitchers go, this is really pretty elite. It's the 80th percentile. Um, I told you about the hard contact, of course, but his average launch angle against him was only 7.4 degrees. And I guess for reference, like under 10 degrees coming off the bat is going to be a ground ball. So people hit the ball very, very hard, but they're beating it into the ground. Uh, and th that is, you, you know, it's a method. I'm not going to say it's like exactly what I would want in a pitcher. You know, I would prefer they just limit hard contact and, you know, guys are rolling over balls as opposed to hitting them 114 miles an hour into the ground. But, you know, like if, if you are going to get hard, or I'm sorry, if you are going to get hit hard, I cannot believe I said that. If you are going to get hit hard, um, yeah, you go ahead and you find a way to make sure that hitters cannot, you know, square up the ball properly to get under it, to elevate and really do damage uh, the way that they are trying to. I think beyond that ground ball rate, the other thing that needs to be said about him, he walks guys at a 4.4% clip. This is in the 97th percentile of pitchers across the league. Um, simply does not walk guys. It's really like elite. And, you know, despite the hard contact, um, this is what keeps his whip relatively low. It was a 1.15, which is, you know, better than league average whip. Um, yeah, 4.4% walk rate. He simply does not give up, uh, does not give up free bases. And he clearly stays out of the heart of the plate. And I, I think that's kind of like, it's a very fine balance to walk because as a soft thrower, as somebody without a ton of stuff, right, you need to, you know, you live and die by inducing these swings. Um, on pitches that hitters do not want to hit. But at the same time, if you do not make them convincing enough, if they do not tunnel well, if they do not you know, seem enticing at the point when the hitter is making the decision to swing, you're going to walk a ton of guys. It, it will you know, trail off the plate and they'll just spit on it. Um, so I think it's really telling that he, you know, he has found something in some way, shape, or form uh, that does in, you know, at least deceive hitters to the point where they cannot recognize a pitch is not what they want until it's too late. Um, I saw, in accordance with Baseball Savant, uh, he has, they do a run value kind of by heart of the plate, by the shadow, which is just a couple inches off the edges, um, by like chase pitches and by waist pitches. And on the shadows of the plate, um, he had like plus 24 runs, uh, which is really elite. So he's very, very good at staying out of the middle and very, very good at staying close enough to be enticing. Um, so I guess like to kind of sum it up, um, you know, I was looking beyond the simple ERA, of course. FIP really likes him fielding independent pitching. FIP is looking at, you know, home runs, walks, and strikeouts. And as somebody who you know, despite a little bit of hard contact as somebody who has a 4.4% walk rate, your FIP is going to be good. Um, FIP is actually like right in line. I think it was like 3.68 and his actual ERA was 3.66. Um, but there are other estimators like baseball savants, XERA, expected ERA. 
Um, and that had him at almost a full run higher at a 4.58. So, you know, by some estimators, there definitely is room for regression. But at the same time, excuse me, the Orioles are not bringing this guy in to be the number one pitcher if that's what, you know, if Braxton Garrett is the guy you're trading for. You're bringing him in because he's cost-controlled um, and he will limit some hard contact and eat some innings for you. And once again, uh, Braxton Garrett's got a full five years of control remaining, so all the time in the world. Edward Cabrera is our next and final guy. So, like Braxton Garrett, uh, he'll be a free agent in 2029. You have a full five years of control, and that's about the last way that Edward Cabrera is anything like Braxton Garrett. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so last year on the surface, he threw 99 innings, had a 4.24 ERA, and a 1.45 whip. So whip was way up there. Um, However, four of the five pitches he throws are above average by Stuff Plus. He throws a four-seam, a sinker, a slider, a curveball, and a changeup. And the changeup is the only thing that Stuff Plus doesn't like. But the fascinating thing about him is if you ever watch an Edward Cabrera start, you will notice that the pitch he throws most often is his changeup. And if you're a Pitching Ninja fan, and I'm actually wearing my Pitching Ninja shirt today, but if you're a Pitching Ninja fan... The reason Edward Cabrera makes Pitching Ninja is because he's throwing these insane, ridiculous, demonic changeups. His changeup averages, and yes, averages, and once again, this is a changeup, averages 92.9 miles an hour. His average changeup is faster than Braxton Garrett's fastball by over two miles an hour. You know, it's insane. 92.9. Um, and so, yeah, Stuff Plus does not like this pitch. I'll get into that a tiny bit later, but Stuff Plus doesn't like it, but by StatCast's run value, it was incredibly valuable. I think his off-speed, let me pull it up, Um, off-speed run value was in the 95th percentile this year. Uh, You know, this thing is like just ridiculous. It's been up to 96 miles an hour as a changeup, which is just like... I don't know. It, you know, it sounds like a joke. I, I was a college pitcher and I was like an 86 to 88 guy. And like the concept of me throwing like one of my really good fastballs. And this is just 10 miles an hour harder. You know, it's like 96 mile an hour changeup. Anyway. Um, so looking at that run value metric that StatCast puts out. So among pitchers who faced as many hitters as he did, And, you know, I'm turning this into a rate because he only threw 99 innings, like I told you guys. So I didn't want to look at it. Run value is something that accrues over time. And so, you know, if you like, I think Logan Webb led the league and that's because in terms of changeups and that's because he threw 200 plus innings and has one of the best changeups. So, you know, he's got the combo of time to accrue as well as having a great pitch. So I set like the limit at pitchers who faced as many hitters as Edward Cabrera did this year. And I looked at, okay, what is the rate at which his changeup is actually accruing these stats? And among those pitchers, the only people who accrued, you know, run value at a higher rate than Edward Cabrera were Devin Williams, Merrill Kelly, Logan Webb, and Michael Waka. Four guys. That's it. And this run value rate is just in front of 
a guy some of you might know, Grayson Rodriguez. So this changeup, you know, per pitch on a pitch basis is a more valuable pitch than Grayson Rodriguez's changeup. The pitch that all of us, you know, like go to sleep and dream about at night. The thing that, you know, we all like have been lauding for years as, oh my God, this guy is coming up and he's got this insane, you know, some people do like his slider more. I like the changeup more. Um, yeah, so, you know, just in front of Grayson Rodriguez's changeup. And then I guess the other thing I should just say is that of those five names I listed, Williams, Kelly, Webb, Waka, and Grayson Rodriguez, Edward Cabrera gets a better whiff rate, you know, actually just like swing and miss on his changeup than everybody but Devin Williams. And Devin Williams is the only person in the entire world who throws a 3,000 RPM changeup. You know, it's like, it's got the nickname the airbender because it just, it, it looks so fantastical the way it moves. Um, so, you know, better whiff rate than Logan Webb's changeup, than Merrill Kelly's, who obviously had a phenomenal year. We saw him in the playoffs. Then Waka, who, uh, you know, like, we all kind of laugh at him because it's like, oh, the Orioles are going to sign somebody like a Michael Waka, and that's all disappointing. But the fact of the matter is, he was great last year, and the changeup was one of the primary reasons. And then again, he's just in front of Grayson Rodriguez on the rate of, like, accruing value from this pitch. So, really, like, pretty elite changeup. Um and so, like, to, to talk about why Stuff Plus doesn't like it as much, Stuff Plus has it at a, let me look back real quick, at only an 89. And Stuff Plus is normalized to 100, so 100 is a perfectly average changeup. So, you know, why Stuff Plus doesn't really like this pitch, just to kind of round out, well, let me take a step back. The reason I like this pitch, I told you it's 93 miles an hour. And it's moving 16 and a half inches to his arm side. You, you know, it's like, it's like really, really elite level sinker movement and arm side movement. And this thing is like 93 touching 96 as a changeup. It's, it's insane. Um, but I think that the reason Stuff Plus might not like it is it's almost like a different fastball for him. So his average fastball on the four seam and on the sinker is about at 96. They are distinct shapes, but it's almost like, you know, there is a spectrum from the four seam to the changeup and the sinker is kind of in the middle of it um, in terms of movement. So the changeup and the sinker are really pretty similar in terms of movement. There's about five inches of vertical and like three inches of horizontal and only the three mile an hour difference. Um, and I guess the largest thing, you want to create a tiny bit more separation than that uh, for the sake of just deception. Uh, you know, a, hitter, a hitter's ability to make an adjustment mid-pitch is finite. So if you can create a little bit more separation, you know, they have a larger adjustment to make once they realize that they guessed wrong. Um, you know, between the sinker and the changeup, you don't have quite as much separation, and so there is less ground to cover in order to make up for that. Um, I think that's like the biggest complaint you can make. I also think that Stuff Plus, you know, as a model, you build out across the data set that you have, and the data set for, you know, 93 mile an hour changeups is not large because um, <laughs> nobody else does it. So, you know, you like gear a model to be effective and be most like representative. Um, for the larger body of 
you know, of work in front of you. So when we have Dean Kramer throwing, you know, 84, 85 mile an hour changeups, that's like more like league average. And that's what you want the stuff plus model to really diagnose properly, I guess is the thing to say. Um, so I think this is kind of a, you, you know, there are some complaints on separation from the fastball, but at the same time, this guy throws it 30% of the time. It's clearly effective. It does not get hit hard. Um, and he's really fascinating in that way. And so I guess just carrying on in like the good ways, um, you know, he strikes out over 27% of the batters he faces. Um, he is very, very good in that sense. He gets whiffs. He does not allow a lot of hard contact. I don't know who on earth would be able to square up 93 miles an hour moving, you know, a foot and a quarter to the arm side. Um, but his ground ball rate is over 55% as a matter of fact. So, well, actually, when I said he's not like Garrett, uh, Braxton Garrett in any way, I guess I kind of lied on that. Garrett's was 49%, but both like pretty elite ground ball guys. Um, that is something that we've seen across the Marlins. Sandy Alcantara is obviously that same thing. Um, but yeah, so really, really phenomenal ground ball rate. Um, and that's about like all of the good stuff I've given you. The reason he pitched 99 innings last year is he was actually optioned in August. And you kind of question, like, what could possibly make all of this phenomenal stuff go bad? And it's that he walks over 15% of batters faced. So, you know, like one in every six batters the guy faces gets walked. Um, and this was actually, like, kind of fun to research because <laughs> it's rare that you find people who are, like, you know, baseball savant has these, you know, sliding scales from 1 to 100, and it's very rare that you find people all the way at the edge. But this walk rate is in the first percentile of MLB pitchers. I mean, it's really bad. <laughs> like, among pitchers with 90 innings last year, only Michael Kopech at 15, I'm 15.4% beat, I don't know, beat is a relative term. It was, it was worse than Edward Cabrera's. 15.2%. And the next was Blake Snell, who obviously led the league in walks, and his was almost a full 2% lower at, like, 13.3. So really, really bad walk rates. You know, the guy throws so hard. He has, like, this disgusting stuff. It's a super unique repertoire with this changeup. Um, but the command was so bad that he actually got optioned in August. And to be quite frank, he really, like, wasn't that phenomenal when he got back. Um, you know, the command was not particularly better. So it, it's kind of like you can dream on you can dream on Edward Cabrera as much as anybody on earth. You know, like the stuff is there. I told you that his changeup was his only pitch by stuff plus that was below average. And then I proceeded to tell you why the changeup was so effective. And then you stop and you take a step back and it's like, all right, well, we got two fastballs that are above average, we've got a slider that's above average, and we've got a curveball that's above average. You know, he's got this phenomenal repertoire. He's just got to find the plate. Um, and so you can really, like, you can dream on this guy as much as you can anybody on Earth. Um, and you'd have, you know, a full five years to work with him. Again, this was his first year in the bigs. Um, you get five years of this guy. So there's plenty of reason to just love it and dream on it. Um, but obviously you gotta you gotta find a way to link up in a trade. Um I am getting a little bit long on time here. I, I guess, you know, I, I can say something pretty quick on 
sort of the cost of these guys. Um, I, I, I think that the first thing I'll say is the reason, the reason we're hearing all these exorbitant asks coming out of the White Sox camp is because, you know, the, I, I guess the cost of pitching is so through the roof right now. You know, nobody expected Imanaga to get $100 million. Nobody expected, um, I, I don't know, nobody expected Yamamoto to get 325 You know, people were projecting him for 220 and that was going to be huge. Um, it's really like the, the cost of pitching is so through the roof that uh, I, I guess these teams who, you know, the White Sox who are holding on to a Dylan Cease, the Marlins who are holding on to all these young arms, like controllable starting pitching is becoming, it's not becoming, it is, and it's just like increasing the gap to second place as the most valuable single thing that you can have. Um, because there's such a scarcity of like really, truly effective starting pitchers at cost-controlled rates. Um, so to talk about any of these guys, you know, I, I, I think there's a chance that I could give you like a, a trade proposal. And as the market keeps progressing forward in this year, people start to panic at the end and you have five bidders all going for Edward Cabrera that the trade proposal I give could be absolutely terrible and so far off of the reality. I, you know, I, I like, I can try to project and I think, you know, somebody like a, like a Trevor Rogers could probably be had, like maybe for something like an Austin Hayes, you know, kind of a complimentary MLB piece, or if you want to go prospects and full years of control, someone like a Connor Norby, you know, Trevor Rogers will be the cheapest and that's probably the floor. Um, but once you start talking about Garrett, I think that there are a lot of reasons that his value should not be as high as it is, um, or as high, you know, as high as some people say it is, uh, mostly because of that hard contact that he does allow. But again, you're getting five years of control, somebody with these minuscule walk rates, you know, 3.6 ERA, he ate up 160 innings, which is as much as anybody in the game nowadays, um, really steady, reliable guy, and you know, doesn't walk people, doesn't give up free bags, and seemingly, despite the hard contact, doesn't really get damaged. Um, so you talk about him, and yeah, you definitely need more. You know, that's probably uh, on the lines of, like, you're sending probably a Cowser and maybe Joey Ortiz or one of your um, one of your backup infielders, you know, an Orias or something of that sort, um, and you get them in the fold. And I do think that Cabrera, you know, purely on the arm talent alone uh, would cost the most. Um, and, you know, tack on a little bit from what I had just said. I, again, like, I, I think these proposals are a little bit fruitless uh, just because the market, I think, has changed so significantly from where it was even a year ago. Um, so I'll end it there. Uh, next time, I definitely do want to talk through uh, Yuri Perez and Jesus Luzardo because they're just fun to dig into. Um, they have so much, like, so much talent um, in terms of just stuff alone. And, uh, you know, Luzardo in particular, like, really reined it in last year. He was somebody that the athletics were dreaming on. Um, and 
couldn't get walk rates down. You know, he, he was Edward Cabrera uh, at the beginning of his co- career, and they have obviously made it work for him. Last year, he was pitching like an ace. Um, so excited to get into those two guys, um, and we'll maybe circle up. I might try to put together, I guess, some more effective, like, relative values of these guys uh, to give you guys some reference for that. But for this time, it looks like it's been about 45 minutes, so I'm going to head out. Um, yeah, definitely, uh, like we always say, please do, if you're liking the content we're putting out, please do subscribe. Uh, please do rate our podcast. Give us some comments. You can email us at thewarehousepod at gmail.com. You can come find us on X slash Twitter. Um, you can, yeah, just reach out. We would love to talk. Uh, we obviously enjoy baseball. That's why we're here. So uh, once again, this is Eli, Elijah, and this has been the Warehouse Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great day.